Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of 100 Fathoms Under by John Blaine. Volume 5, Chapter 13, Trapped. The cable was running out from the main winch, lowering the submobile for his first dive of the morning when Scotty told Rick what had been on his mind. I'm getting uneasy about leaving the camp. The natives were watching this morning. There wasn't a sound in that jungle. Yeah, I noticed that. Rick put a clamp on the power line and secured it to the cable. Think they'll break the taboo? Chad had joined them in time to hear Rick's question. I think maybe yes. Before they would not, but now the dragon god is behind the taboo, and they want the dragon god. That's what I think, Scotty agreed, and there's something else we've forgotten. How about our friend in the paint locker? I haven't forgotten him, Rick denied, but what can we do about him? Turk keeps him locked up, except for a while in the morning before we start diving and again at night when we're through. It's a spooky business, Chad amused. I get the creeps in my bones. Zircon interrupted, calling an order to Digger Sears at the winch control. Give them another five feet. They have something on the sonoscope screen. Another dragon? Rick asked eagerly. Your father thinks it's the inner wall of the temple, the big scientist replied. They're going to pry a piece loose with a scoop if they can. The boys waited, watching Zircon. Once the tone of the generator deepened and the cable moved a few inches, down below the submobile would be jockeying for a better position. They've got it, Zircon boomed exultantly. All right, Sears, bring him back up. Slowly. As the submobile came up through the water, Rick could make out a heavy slab of stone firmly locked between the jaws of the scoop. The stone was covered in what looked like a cross between Chinese picture writing and hieroglyphics. It was a jubilant pair of scientists that climbed out of the submobile. We found the temple itself, Hartson Brandt said. Seems to be almost intact. With any luck, we should be able to bring up most of it to the surface. Professor Gordon had already hurried to the stone slab. This is more than I had hoped for. If we can translate it, we may find some of the answers archaeologists have been seeking for years. Hartson, I'd like to get this ashore at once. Turk Mullane had come out of the pilot house to see what the submobile had brought up. Sure. Here, I'll give you a hand. They could put it into one of the small boats. In a moment, with one of the sailors helping, the slab was safely stowed. Gordon looked around. I'd like someone to help me ashore. Who wants to go? I will go, Chada said quickly. He climbed into the boat and took the oars. 
In a moment, he and Gordon were on their way back to camp. Turk stopped to speak to Rick and Scotty. We've been lucky. Even the weather has been on our side. But that's not going to hold for much longer. Rick looked at the cloudless sky. Not much sign of bad weather now. I know this part of the world. Three days without rain is a long time. He went back to the pilot house. Scotty stared after him. We. He talks as though he has a half share in the expedition. Well, he's been pretty good about cooperating, Rick pointed out. I don't like him much because he blows hot and cold on alternate days. He can't decide whether he wants to be a grouch or a good guy, but he has been a lot of help. Sure, Scotty said. Come on, let's help check out the submobile. Want to go down with me, Scotty? Hobart Zircon asked. Scotty definitely did, and said so with enthusiasm. He and the scientists got into the submobile, and Rick and Hartson Brandt tightened down the hatch. As they were finishing, Turk came out of the pilot house. I'll give you a hand back here, he offered. The helmsman can keep the ship steady without me. Are you sure? Rick asked doubtfully. He's a good man, don't worry. The second dive was as successful as the first. A few moments after they reached 590 feet, Scotty phoned up that they had a second piece of the temple slab. It proved to be smaller than the first one, but bore even more interesting carvings, depicting helmeted warriors going into battle. Even through the layer of dirt, Rick could see that the warriors had regular features. Their helmets were like those of ancient Greece. Hartson Brandt was excited over the find. Gordon must see this right away, he exclaimed. Captain, will you have one of the men row me to camp? Turk motioned to one of the seamen. Take Mr. Brandt ashore, but come right back. To the others, he explained with a grin. I don't like to have both of my lifeboats away at once. You never know when you'll need one. Zircon looked around as the boat departed. Our little group is depleted, he said. Do you suppose that could mean a double ration of lunch for us? Or has everyone but me forgotten that it's lunchtime? You took the words right out of my mouth, Scotty approved. Let's see what Otera has for us. Otera had fresh salad, sandwiches, and a cold fruit drink. Turk joined them at lunch on the hatch and gestured toward the camp. That's the trouble with scientific enthusiasm. It makes you forget your meals. There's another case of rations ashore, Scotty told him. I can manage. Turk's even inclined to talk. How long do you think we'll be at this? He asked Zircon. The scientist shrugged. Well, that's hard to say. Why do you ask? I'd surely like to make one dive before we go back, Turk said. Of course, Zircon boomed. The only professional among us, and you haven't been down yet. Unless we get further instructions from Hartson, why don't you go down this afternoon? I'd appreciate the chance, Turk said eagerly. Rick didn't quite know why he felt disapproval. Will you go down with him, sir? He asked Zircon. The big scientist thought it over for a moment. No, he said finally. I think one of us older folks should be on deck at all times. No offense, boys. I'm sure you understand. You may go down with the captain, Rick. 
It would have been pointless to refuse. Rick just nodded. After lunch, the usual check of the submobile was made. The sailor who had taken Hearts and Branch ashore had returned, and Otera could lend a hand with the boom ropes so there would be no shortage of help. Rick climbed in, followed by Turk, and the hatch swung closed behind them. In a moment, they were settled. The phone circuit checked, and the order was given to swing them over the side. Rick would have liked to watch out the forward observation port as they went down, but Turk gave him no chance. The captain was full of questions. He wanted to know everything about the operation of the submobile. He listened eagerly to Rick's explanations and made him repeat everything to be sure he had it straight. It was natural enough, Rick thought. After all, Turk was a professional salvage man. They hardly noticed the submobile's descent until Zircon called out that they were at 585 feet. Rick turned on the sonoscope and focused it with Turk watching over his shoulder. The screen glowed with the green image of stairs, ending in what seemed to be a carved door. Rick snapped on the searchlight and looked through the observation port. The light, an intense yellow at this depth, showed him the stairs, ending in the wall of the temple. A row of carvings on the wall had split away in some places. Evidently, an ancient craftsman had carved his picture stories on thin squares of stone that were later cemented to the wall. I think we can get one of those, Rick said. He gauged the distance, pausing to watch a deep-sea eel swim into the light and then out again. Turk's black eyes were shining. How oh, do we do it? With the salvage arms or the scoop? The scoop, Rick answered. The salvage arms are only for things big enough to slip a noose around, although they can be used to handle drills or to set charges. We'll have to get closer, Turk. Here we go. Turk said. He moved back and turned on the propeller motors. Rick watched to be sure he was doing it properly. Then Turk took the aft propeller control and moved it carefully. The submobile swayed a little and drifted closer to the temple wall. Turk retarded the control, working with it until the propeller was turning just enough to hold them in position with the scoop within easy reach of the wall. Rick nodded. Turk had the touch all right. The captain grinned. Easy as pie. Running this thing is a cinch. It's supposed to be, Rick told him. Dad and the others always plan a thing so that the controls will be simple enough for an untrained operator. Now let's go after that nearest slab. Oh, about letting me operate the scoop? Turk asked. Okay. Rick changed places with him. Turk had the telephone mouthpiece slung around his neck, and he kept it on as he moved into the forward operating position. He spoke to the deck. We're going after a piece of slab on the temple wall. Rick heard Zircon's reply in his own earphones. Right. All okay on deck. Turk took the pistol grips that controlled the salvage scoop and tried swinging it in order to get the feel of the controls. Then, watching the sonoscope, he went after the slab. Once he paused and refocused the image on the screen, after the briefest of tries, the scoop jaws locked firmly on the slab. I've got it! he exclaimed. Lad, this is the greatest machine I've ever seen. It will revolutionize diving. Rick nodded. You operate the thing like a veteran, Turk. Nothing to it, Turk returned. He spoke into the mouthpiece. 
Hello on deck. Is all quiet? All quiet, Zircon returned. Let me talk with Digger Sears, will you? Rick looked at the captain in surprise. In a moment, the mate's voice came down the wire. All right, Turk. Easy to operate as a hand shovel, Digger. How's it look on deck? Good o. Then get to it. Right o. The phone went dead. What was that about? Rick demanded. Keep your shirt on, Turk said. Shut these propeller motors off and let's clear for surfacing. Rick did so, a sudden apprehension forming within him. The feeling grew as the minutes passed and they did not move from the bottom. What's going on? Why are we sitting down here like this? Turk reached into his hip pocket and came out with a leather blackjack. He slapped it into the palm of his hand, eyes on Rick. We'll be going up as soon as your friends are taken care of. Rick's heart jumped into his mouth. Taken care of? Oh, nothing serious. Unless they put up too much of a struggle, Turk assured him, smiling. Rick leaned back against the wall and stared at the captain. He had a mental picture of Scotty and Zircon facing the entire crew, and maybe the Japanese stowaway. You've just been waiting for a chance like this, haven't you? He burst out. You waited until the party was split up and... Not until I made a dive with the good teacher, Turk finished. Why? Rick asked hoarsely. He gauged the distance and his legs drew up under him. Turk leaned forward, eyes hard. Don't try anything, kid. I'll slug you if you give me half an excuse. Rick subsided, knowing he didn't have a chance. Tough lines. We're taking over. As of now, but we won't be diving for the temple. We're after big game. The words formed without thinking. The ship on the bottom. Of course, why hadn't he realized it all along? Of course, that's the Asamo over yonder. You've never heard of her, I take it. Few have. Sit quiet and give me no trouble. I'll tell you about it. Rick nodded. What else could he do? He was in an agony of worry for Scotty and Professor Zircon, but he couldn't help them, trapped as he was with Turk Mullane in almost a hundred fathoms of water. It was a strange tale that Turk told him, starting in the first year of the war against Japan. In the first months of the war, the Japanese had overrun a great part of Southeast Asia, and they had rifled Singapore, the Dutch Indies, Rabaul, Manila, Hong Kong, and other places, of vast amounts of valuables. The cruiser Asamo had been sent to collect the smaller, more valuable stuff and take it to Japan. Netherlands intelligence, through espionage agents in the Indies, had learned of the plan and the Asamo's route. A Dutch submarine, based at Perth, Australia, had been given orders to intercept the cruiser. The interception had taken place off Quangara, and a torpedo had crippled the Asamo and sent her running for cover. A second torpedo caught her just off the tip of Little Quangara, and she had gone to the bottom. Turk's black eyes gleamed. We don't even know how much treasure she has, except that it's counted in the millions. Gems, pearls, gold bullion, plate, even cash money. There's more than a million just in pearls. We know they got that much when the Japs butchered the Australian garrison at Rabaul. Digger Sears spoke through the earphones. Old Jenkin, Tech, 
We're bringing you topside. Much trouble? Turk asked casually. Rick's heart stopped while he waited for the reply. Not much. The terror took a hand. We had to clip him. The others are in the galley. Hash is gordon him. Digger rang off, and in a moment the sunmobile stirred and started his voyage upward. Hash is Soyu Hashimo. He was an officer on the Asamo, Turk explained for Rick's benefit. He and Digger got together while Hash was in an Aussie prison camp. When the war ended, he sneaked Hash away and brought him to me. Wasn't much I could do about it, on account of the Asamo being below diving depth. Then I read a yarn in the paper about this expedition, and then I saw the ad for a skipper. Perfect answer, wasn't it? Rick said bitterly. It was perfect. If you'd been a little smarter, you could have added two and two together. You almost caught Hash when he came to see me at the hotel. You saw him on the dock. No wonder you cooperated. You wanted the dives to go off smoothly while you watched and learned how the equipment operated. And you were so friendly. You make me sick. Turk chuckled. He was in high good humor, but his black eyes never left Rick, and the blackjack was held ready for use. Rick closed his eyes. This was his fault. Hadn't he had warning that something was afoot? But Turk's cooperative friendliness had lulled him into a false security. Why hadn't they kept better guard? You can't get away with this, he stated finally. When the expedition fails to return on schedule, Dr. Warren will have the Navy looking for us. And they'll find us, but they won't find you. And why is that? Because you'll be on Quangara, my boy. The submobile broke clear of the water and swung inboard to settle lightly on the deck. Turk took a firmer grip on the blackjack. Don't be foolish enough to try anything. I won't, Rick said dully. He knew he didn't have a chance. The hatch swung open and Digger's grinning face looked in. Out you go, Turk ordered. Rick climbed to the deck and looked around. There was no sign of his friends, but the Japanese was standing in the galley door and he was holding Scotty's rifle. He submitted while one of the sailors lashed his hands behind him. Then Digger shoved him toward the galley. Rick almost fell over something that looked like a heavy pipe set in a metal plate. It was held upright by two legs. Keep moving, Digger snapped and gave Rick another push. The Japanese stepped aside as he went headlong through the galley door. Scotty and Zircon looked up at him. Otero was huddled in a corner, his bushy hair dark with blood. What happened? Rick asked despairingly. He saw that Scotty had a welt over one eye. We had no warning. Zircon said heavily, Digger Sears handed me the phone, and while I was putting the mouthpiece around my neck, he thrust a pistol into my ribs. I made a jump for my rifle, Scotty said. One of the sailors threw a wrench at me, caught me a glancing blow over the eye. By the time I got back to my feet, he was covering me with my own gun. Otera came running out of the galley with a knife, Zircon continued. The sailor in the pilot house stepped out behind him, struck him with a length of pipe. He hasn't stirred since. The sudden throb of the diesel engines told them that the trawler was underway. Rick explained briefly what Turk had told him. So that's it. 
I saw the mortar. They have shells, too. What do they intend on doing with it? We'll know shortly, Sir Khan said. The Japanese looked at them and spoke in perfect English. Make no noise, my friends, or I will be forced to shoot. You stand outside, you ape. We don't want to look at you, Scotty growled. The Japanese walked over to the bound boy and deliberately kicked him in the ribs. Scotty turned white but made no sound. You'll be sorry for that, Rick said hotly. Turk appeared in the doorway just as the anchor chain rattled out. Onto your feet! Out on the deck, Digger had opened a box and was taking out what looked like miniature bombs. Turk pointed at them. You see those? One peep out of any of you, and we'll drop a few among your friends on shore. We're untying your hands, but I'll be right behind you at this. He held up a pistol. They were herded into the boat under Turk's watchful eyes. He'd been careful to bring the boat to the side of the trawler away from the camp. The people on shore couldn't see what was going on. Two sailors brought Otera out and placed him in the bottom of the boat. Then Turk's pistol urged Scotty, Zircon, and Rick into the boat. Turk motioned to the sailors. Row you two. Turk had planned well. As the boat rounded the trawler, Hartson Brandt, Professor Gordon, and Chada waved and walked down to the beach to meet them. Before they realized anything was wrong, they were covered by Turk's pistol. The two sailors ran past the astonished scientists and began to search the camp methodically. Hartson, Brandt, Gordon, and Chada asked questions and were ordered to be still. The Spindrift party stood silently until the sailors finished and reported no weapons in the camp. All right, then. Stand quietly, all of you. Digger has orders to drop a couple of mortar shells around your ears if you make any funny moves. Turk backed to the nearest boat and got in, followed by a sailor. The other took the second boat. In a moment, they were headed back to the ship while the boys and scientists watched helplessly. Then Gordon dropped to his knees beside Otera and lifted the cook's wrist. His pulse is strong. Rick, get the first aid kit. While Gordon bandaged Otera, the three who had been aboard the ship told their stories. Well, now we have answers to many questions, Chada said, but it does us no good. No, no good at all, Hartson Brandt agreed. Rick sat down on the ground and stared out at the trawler. They were in a bad spot, trapped on a tiny spit of land with Turk and his crew in front of them, and behind them, a jungle that was ominously silent. Chapter 14 Mutiny Aboard the Tarpon Rick went into the dark tent and bent over Otera. The cook was sleeping quietly. Rick tucked in the mosquito netting again, then looked over at Scotty's bunk. He was sound asleep, his face peaceful in the reflected glow of the flashlight. Outside the tent, Chada was sitting, wrapped in his blanket because the night was cool. They're both sleeping, Rick said. Scotty could sleep through anything, I'll bet. He looks as though he didn't have a care in the world. Chada chuckled. Scotty has got good nerve. I guess maybe he learned how to sleep when he was a Marine. Rick looked at the luminous dial of his watch. It was close to four o'clock. They had split the night into watches two at a time. He and Chada had drawn the late one. 
Off the end of the peninsula, the trawler rode at anchor. An occasional glimpse of the flashlight told him the Turks' men were on watch. On the other side of the camp, the black wall of jungle was quiet. Once in a while, Rick looked at it, feeling as though countless eyes were watching him. Chada had said the natives were watching, but they had made no move. We're right in the middle, Rick said. Turk on one side and unfriendly natives on the other. Why do you suppose the natives come and go the way they've been doing? They're watching most of the time, but now and then they go away and the jungle seems to wake up. I think sometimes the chief is calling them together in the village to make talk. They all go see what he says, then they come back, those who watch. While they are near, the others of this jungle, the birds and small animals, are being quiet like mouses because they are afraid. Funny they haven't come back to see the dragon, Rick mused. That is true. Maybe they not liking to have us near the dragon. They think we go away soon. Then the dragon is theirs. The dragon god had been gleaming on its pedestal in the faint moonlight, but now the sky was growing cloudy and the darkened camp lost even the uncertain moonlight. Rick pulled his blanket up over his shoulders. They were only a few degrees north of the equator, but the nights were chilly and damp. It's the waiting that bothers me, Rick said after a moment. I keep looking from the jungle to the ship, waiting for something to happen. Oh, something will happen soon, Chada said quietly. More natives are coming. Are you sure? Very sure. We just sit. Soon we find out what they want. Rick was conscious of many eyes watching from the jungle as the minutes ticked away. He tried turning his back on the thick foliage, but that was worse. He felt better when he faced the watching eyes. It was growing lighter now, but daybreak was hidden behind massed clouds. By degrees, he began to see details of the jungle. He could make out the white handkerchief strips and the trees behind them. Then, with shocking suddenness, there was a crashing sound from the jungle. Rick leapt to his feet, Chada beside him. Again, the shout from a hundred throats. Something flew out of the foliage, circled high in the air and thudded to the ground before the tents. The others were out of the tents almost instantly, waiting in silence for what would happen next. A bird cry broke the stillness to be followed by another. They've gone, Scotty said. What hit the ground out here? I don't know. Rick was already walking toward the spot, his flashlight beam cutting the gloomy dawn light. It came to rest on a carved club. Here it is, he called. Gordon examined it and picked it up by the haft. It was a vicious-looking thing, a thin handle growing into a diamond-shaped head studded with shark's teeth. From the end dangled a tuft of hair. The entire head of the war club gleamed sticky red in the flashlight beam. Blood, Gordon said. Probably chicken or goat blood. He looked around at the circle of faces. We've been warned again, and by the nature of the warning, I would say they mean business this time. We'd be willing to leave, Scotty said, if we could. Well, it's daylight. What do we do about breakfast? The mention of breakfast broke the atmosphere of tension the finding of the bloody club had caused. Rick thought that Scotty had known that it would. He grinned at his friend. Come earthquake, piracy, revolution, or hurricane. 
That stomach of yours never stops hoping, does it? It never has. Come on, let's break out that case of rations and see what gives. The rations provided canned bacon and eggs, powdered coffee and hard biscuits with other food for later meals. The water bag was nearly empty, but there was enough for coffee and for drinking during the day. They could wash in salt water. As they drank the last of the coffee, the trawler stirred into life. The anchor came up, and it moved out through the reef passage. Bet I know where they go, Chada offered. Scotty grinned. Doesn't exactly take a Hindu mystic to guess that. They're heading for the Asamo. No doubt, Hearts of Brant agreed. Rick went with Gordon to see how Otero was getting along. The cook had regained consciousness the night before, but Gordon had given him a sedative to keep him quiet, fearing that he might have a bad concussion. Otero woke as they changed his bandage. He tried to feel the cut on his head, but Rick held his hands. The cook poured forth a stream of beche de mer. Dispel a savvy, Gordon told him. To Rick, he said, he wanted to warn us about Turk, but he didn't dare. They had threatened to kill him. He did warn us once, but we didn't pay any attention. Oh, the note, Rick exclaimed. Watch out, Osamo, was that it? Gordon questioned Otera and then nodded. Yeah, he doesn't write very much, naturally. He got the spelling of Osamo from a chart Turk had. He saw it when he served dinner in Turk's cabin one day. By the time they had finished ministering to Otera, the trawler had reached a point over the sunken ship. During the morning, they watched the submobile lowered twice, but they couldn't see whether or not it brought up anything. I wish I knew what Turk was planning for us. This is getting me down, Rick complained. He brought that mortar along for something, Scotty said. Obviously, Zircon replied. Scotty, I know almost nothing about mortars. How do they work? Well, you saw the thing, Scotty began. Looks like a big pipe set on a base plate, supported by two legs. That's about all there is to it. The thing could be aimed by changing the elevation of the barrel. There's a firing table that tells you just how far a shell will travel at each angle of adjustment. The shells are miniature bombs, and they have a propelling charge in the base. There's a firing pin at the bottom of the barrel. You drop the shell in. The firing pin strikes the propelling charge, shoots it out. Explodes when it lands. That doesn't sound very accurate, Hartson Brandt said. It is, though. I've seen marine mortarmen drop shells into targets the size of pickle barrels at a thousand yards. Rick whistled. That's shooting. Where do you suppose they got it? Well, that one looks like it's of Japanese, Mike. It's probably a war souvenir diggers. It wasn't until after lunch that the natives returned. Scotty, watching the jungle closely, said, I think there are only two of them. Chances are the rest are cooking up some kind of mischief. I'd like to know what that is, Rick told him. Scotty gave him a wry grin. Don't be impatient. We're going to find out. Chada pointed at the trawler. They are diving more. Not wasted any time, Gordon commented. I wonder if they found anything. It's possible, Hartson Brandt replied. 
The equipment is certainly easy to operate. It was designed that way. Mullane will have no trouble unless something breaks down. Or unless a storm comes up, Rick added, looking at the cloudy sky. The submobile made two more dives as they watched, and then late in the afternoon, the trawler came across the strait and through the reef. As the spindrift party walked down to the shore, a boat was put over the side. One of the sailors took the oars, and Turk and Digger and Hashimo got in. Two five-gallon cans were handed down to them. Then the boat made for the shore, coming to a stop a few yards from the spindrift group. The Japanese man had Scotty's rifle. Rick saw his friend's eyes harden as Scotty watched. Digger had a pistol. Turk stood up and hailed them. We've come to bargain. What do you want? Hartson Brandt asked coldly. We know you're short of water. We'll trade ten gallons for instructions on planting explosive charges with the submobile. The spindrift group huddled together like a football squad. Just give them some cockeyed information that's wrong, Scotty suggested. Zircon objected. That would serve nothing. It would wreck the submobile and maybe do away with those in it, but it wouldn't help us. That's true, Hartson Brandt agreed, and we do need water. We gain that much by answering Mullane, and we lose nothing. There was general agreement. All right, Hartson Brandt told Turk. We'll trade. Bring the water ashore. Turk motioned them to the side of the camp away from the water bag. Stand over there. Don't try anything or you'll get shot. They obeyed and watched the sailor lug the cans over and pour them into the water bag. Then Turk stepped ashore and walked over to them, stopping ten feet away. All right, there's your water. Now talk. The charges are all prepared, Hartson Brandt said. They're marked according to the size of the explosive charge in them. There are hooks on them for attaching them underwater. On the side of the charge is a waterproof switch marked safe and explode. Clamp the charge on one of the extension arms, then throw the switch to explode. Be sure the sound gear is turned off. Take it down, attach the charge by the hooks, then release the extension arm clamp and come to the surface. Turn on the sound gear, and the charge will explode. The sound impulses activate a tuning fork by sympathetic vibration, and the vibrating fork closes the circuit. Turk asked suspiciously, Won't the sonoscope set it off? No. The sound gear sends out impulses at 30,000 cycles per second. The sonoscope operates at 50,000. The charges are set for the sound gear. Turk nodded. On cue, he turned to leave. Hartson Brandt stopped him. Just a moment, Mullane. We want to know what you intend to do with us. Turk laughed. Nothing. We won't lay a hand on you. You'll never get away with this, Zircon bellowed. I better explain, just in case you think the law will ever catch up with us. He motioned toward Hashimo was watching their every move, the rifle pointing toward them. He gave us the idea, you see. He was on the Asamo when it went down, and he was one of the survivors. There were about forty of them. They swam ashore and took over the island. The natives were friendly enough, but they didn't obey orders fast enough to suit the Japs, 
So the senior officer ordered his men to break the clay dragon they worshipped. That was a piece of it you found here on the first day. What does this have to do with us? Hartson Brent said coldly. The natives were not pleased. Quite the opposite. They pounced on the Japs one night and massacred the lot of them, except for Hashimo, who was an excellent swimmer. He got to little Kwangara and was waiting there when a Jap destroyer came looking for the Asamo. The destroyer took him off, but it was sunk near New Guinea, and Hashimo landed in prison camp, where Digger met him. So you intend letting the natives do your dirty work? Suppose they don't, Gordon exclaimed. Oh, they will. Then we'll finish getting up the treasure and sail back to Honolulu, and we'll regretfully report that you were all massacred one night here in camp. The broken radiophone will alibi us for not reporting sooner. The Navy will send out a punitive expedition, of course, but we don't mind, and you'll be past caring. The fiendish simplicity of the plan stunned the Spindrift party. They watched, speechless, as Turk went back to the boat. They would get away with it because there'd be no reason to suspect his story. He had only to explain that the scientists preferred to camp ashore than it had caused their deaths. An investigation would show nothing. You know, it's incredible. It's, it's inhuman, Gordon exclaimed. That doesn't seem to bother Turk, Hartson Brandt said dryly. Zircon shook his head. History is full of tales of many more than seven people being sacrificed for less treasure than lies out there. Rick turned and stared at the jungle. Why can't we do something? Maybe we could turn the dragon god over to them in exchange for our safety. I don't think so, Chada said. Look. The boat had reached the trawler. Digger Sears had climbed to the deck and was carrying the mortar to an open spot on their side of the ship. Back to the jungle. He's going to fire, Scotty shouted. Otera, Rick gasped. We have to move him. He ran for the tent, Scotty, Chada, and Zircon close behind. They picked up the cot and carried it like a stretcher, trotting to the jungle. This is far enough. Drop flat, everybody, Gordon said as they reached the taboo line. Rick looked into the damp jungle maze, almost a solid wall of foliage. Then he looked out at the trawler. They were caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, all right. He saw Digger do something to his shell and then drop it into the barrel. There was a chugging cough as the mortar went off. Silence as the shell arched high into the air, then a roar as it exploded at the water's edge, blasting coral and water into the air. That was just a ranging shot, Scotty said grimly. Not until then did Rick realize the purpose of the gunnery. Of course, Turk would want no signs of shrapnel in case their bodies were found by a search party. He was going to destroy the dragon god to make sure the natives would carry out his plan. The mortar coughed again, spewing out another shell. There was a pause, then the crash of the explosion. Rick sucked in his breath. The dragon god toppled from the pedestal, a torn and twisted mass of metal. <laughs>